Something you may not know about me is that I love the Christmas season. I love the cold nights and uh, how the sun will go down early and you can have dinner and then I will walk outside uh, with my daughter and my son and we will look at Christmas lights and uh, Christmas displays and the blow up Grinches and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and having conversations with my children as we're walking along outside looking at the lights. I, I love the food. I love that in the Christmas season, there's special baking that we do. Uh, I love being able to have people over and, and cook for them. I love the last few years uh, for my wife's side of the family, we've hosted that Christmas dinner at our place and uh, we make the meal and, and I love that process of preparing a meal for people. I love being with the people. I love being able to see friends. Actually, we have some friends uh, that work here at the church and uh, we joke that we're basically friends once a year because we just see them once every Christmas and we make cookies together. Uh, I, I love being able to, to make excuses for seeing people night after night after night and reconnecting with people. But most of all, what I love about the Christmas season is the awe and the wonder of the bright lights and the dark nights that remind us of the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God who came to us in the flesh. One of my favorite new Christmas songs is a song by someone named John Guerra, and he wrote a song called Lord Remind Me. And my favorite line in the song says that the one who heard our weeping became a child in manger sleeping. The wonder of Christmas. In July? <laughs> uh, you might be looking at the calendar and thinking they're doing a rerun. I knew it. They were going to start recycling through reruns of old North UTV episodes. But actually, no, the reason why I've been thinking about Christmas these last few days is because of the text that we are looking at here this weekend. We're looking at uh, the different seconds in the New Testament, the, the different letters that start with the number two. And today we're looking at the latter half of the book of 2 John. Here's what the text says and why it reminded me of Christmas. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have heard from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world, and any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I don't want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister who is chosen by God send their greetings. This text that we're looking at is focused on the importance of the Christian community 
and also on the importance of the physical incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. See? Christmas in July. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this text, uh, walk through it a little bit so that we get it in us better, and then I want us to look at two implications that this text has for us. So let's walk through the passage in a little bit more detail. Let's start in verse 5 and in verse 6 where it says, And now, dear lady, which is a a reference to uh, a local church, I'm not writing you a new command, but one that we have heard from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love, John is reiterating over and over again to this local church that the main activity that they need to be defined by as Christians is walking in a manner of others' focusedness, of this preferring of the other over themselves, of Uh, ensuring that they live their lives in such a way that they are others-minded, not self-centered in their thinking. Verse 7, I say this because, so he's giving a, a purpose statement. Why should you walk in this way? Why does this need to define how you live as a, as a local church? I say this because Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So why do they need to walk in love? The reason is because there are deceivers who have gone out. Actually, John calls them the antichrist. It's interesting, right? He's talking about a multiplicity of people and then calling them the singular, the antichrist. Basically, what he's saying is that there are people who have gone out from our context, who have gone out from our church, who are getting Jesus wrong. That's what it means to be the Antichrist, is to fundamentally misrepresent who Jesus actually is. And so John is saying, I need you to stay together because there are people out there who do not acknowledge, or uh, the word in Greek can also be called declare or confess. There are people out there who don't say the right things about who Jesus actually is in reality. The, The challenge that was going on in this particular context Uh, The the way people were getting Jesus wrong was uh, this thing called docetism. Uh, Docetism is, uh, it's less of a defined set of uh, truths or of um, points or argumentation. Docetism is more of a vibe. (laughs) It's, It's the vibe of a preferring of the immaterial over the physical. It is the, uh, the word that we get docetism from is a Greek word that means to seem like. In other words, the antichrist, the, the deceivers that were going out, they were getting Jesus wrong by saying that he only seemed to come in the flesh. He wasn't actually a human. He only seemed to be one. And in this teaching, they were running ahead. Verses eight and nine says, watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. So watch out against this false teaching because anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, the true teaching of Christ, does not have 
God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. John is saying there are people who have run ahead of true teaching. There are people who have actually run beyond orthodoxy. They have run beyond a right understanding of who Jesus actually is, namely that he is one who hasn't just seemed to come in the flesh, but he has actually come in the flesh. And John says, you need to watch out. You need to be on guard. You need to be mindful of the fact that there are people out there who are the antichrist, who are going to try to deceive you into thinking that Jesus is not who he actually is. They're going to make you think, or they'll try to make you think like he just seemed to be a real man. But John says, look, if you believe that, that Jesus wasn't actually fully human, you'll lose what we've been working for. You won't actually have a relationship with God. So look, it matters what we think. Verse 10, John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the, the true teaching of Jesus, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. So just a point of clarification, John here is not saying that as individual people, we cannot welcome into our homes as an act of hospitality those who uh, are wrong about doctrine. Even false teachers, this is, this is not a command to bar hospitality to false teachers in a personal way. Remember, John is writing to the elect lady. He, he is writing to uh, a local church. So what he's saying here is uh, do not welcome the false teachers into your pulpit. Don't allow these people to teach in your midst. But what have happened in the first century is that churches didn't gather in big auditoriums. Uh, they gathered in homes. And typically, uh, a particular home of someone who probably had the largest home that could host the most amount of people. So what John is saying is, when these traveling deceivers make their way through your town, don't open your door to your church gathering to them and say, come on in and tell us what you think about things. Because if you do that, you're sharing in their wickedness, in their wicked theology, which undermines the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus, and you are sharing in their wickedness. You are running ahead. You're running beyond. You're no longer saved. So if there's a known false teacher who drives by your house and his car breaks down, you should let him in to call BCAA. But you shouldn't let him into the pulpit of your church. Verse 12, John says, uh, I have much to write to you, but I don't want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Isn't it interesting that what John brings up here is that the reality of the embodied Jesus has real life implications in the value of our embodied connections with one another. There is something different and better about being face-to-face -face when we are trying to communicate with each other. Right now in this moment, I am staring at a camera in an empty room. It would be better if I could see you as I was doing this. That's what John's feeling like when he writes this letter. 
He ends off this section by saying that the children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. What he's basically saying is there's other churches out there, and they say, hey. So that's our passage. Now let's look at two implications that this has for us. The first one is that we need to stay together. And the second one is that we need to acknowledge the real Jesus. So stay together and acknowledge the real Jesus. First, let's look at what it means to stay together. Second John verses six through seven uh, and also verse nine says this, as you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Here's what's interesting about this text is that John links together a, a connectedness and a community involvement with protection from false teaching. It is those who run ahead who are in danger, those who run beyond the true teaching are in danger. And so we need to stick together. We need to love one another so that we will not be deceived. In other words, John is saying that there is protection in the pack. Isolation is dangerous. We know this. If you've watched uh, any of the, you know, animal kingdom kind of stuff, maybe Planet Earth with David Attenborough narrating it. Uh, if you see a scene of a uh, pack of lions or even just one single lion who is uh, scouting out a, a herd of gazelles, you will know that the danger really comes when one of the animals is isolated from the pack. There's protection in the pack. There's a need for us to continue to walk in the faith, in truth and life, for us to remain together, for us to stay together because isolation is dangerous. We are staying together for the purpose in this passage of protecting ourselves from false doctrine. The, the idea that there are these antichrists who are running around and misrepresenting Jesus means that we need to guard ourselves from them and stick together. So one of the ways that this can actually happen uh, in the tradition of the Anabaptists, which is a part of what uh, North U Community Church is a part of, um, there was a historic practice in the 16th century onwards called the community hermeneutic. It's basically the idea that uh, a person should not just study the scriptures in isolation. Uh, it was possible for them to in the 16th century because just a few years before uh, the Gutenberg printing press came out. And so it was possible for people to acquire their own uh, copies of the Bible and acquire their own personal copies of material. And so for the first time in a long time in the 16th century, people were able to study the Bible on their own in isolation in a quiet, dark, locked up room. And yet the Anabaptists adopted the disposition of saying, However, let's not just be isolationist in our studying. Let's actually engage with other people. N not because every single person around the circle has an equal weight of authority or expertise, but because there is a protection in the pack. We will guard ourselves from thinking wrong things when there are other people around us actually helping us think through truth. 
This is one of the one of the ways that we actually practice this at Northview uh, with some degree of regularity is we have something called the sermon preview meeting. So a bunch of people get inside of a room and whoever's preaching that weekend, either at Northview TV or one of our campuses live or at our Sunday night gathering, uh, whoever's preaching that weekend will often get together and talk in a room about what they've studied and how they intend to preach that sermon. And oftentimes there are perspectives and opinions and ideas that come from other people around the table who think differently, who have different levels of expertise, who, who see the world differently, and they will add a nuance and a color to the study of the individual preacher in a different way than that preacher would have had if they just stayed locked away by themselves. There is a protection of orthodoxy when you are staying together. There's a protection in the pack. We need to stay together because continuing in the faith is dependent on a community walking together in love. There's actually a strength to being in a church community where there are different views. So long as we are the kind of people who uh, aren't just trying to find uh, the moderation of views or establishing, you know, the ends of a spectrum and saying we're just going to be committed to the center. Christians are people of truth. So the goal of staying together, the goal of being in the protection of the pack is so that we can actually know and pursue and teach and protect In our day, we need to hear and consider the views of those who actually disagree with us. We need to stay together in such a way that we are committed to a body of people and committed to a willingness to actually hear another perspective than what we already hold. Because we need to recognize that real life is more complicated than the memes make it seem. Real life is textured and complex and nuanced and messy. And the church needs to have a unity, not not a uniformity of opinions. That's tribalism. The church needs to have a dogmatic commitment to staying together in the midst of our diverse opinions. If we're going to be protected from false doctrine, we need to stay together. We need the whole body. We need everyone, and we need to be committed to each other. See, the way the world will know that we are Christians is the way in which we love those who disagree with us. Not a uniformity of opinions, but a unity in the midst of notable disagreements. And unity is only going to actually occur if we walk with one another in love. I think there's two uh, main questions we need to ask ourselves in this day and age. In this day and age of tribalism and the solo student with a smartphone thinking that we know everything and the death of expertise and all of the false teaching that is out there that is bombarding us and crashing like waves against the shore. What we need to ask ourselves are these two questions. Is what I'm doing and what I'm believing walking in obedience to the ways of Jesus? And secondly, am I making decisions about what I believe and how I act from a motivation of love for the other, in particular love for the least and the last, or... Am I acting the way I am and believing what I believe because it will perpetuate my preferences? John tells us that we need to walk in obedience to Jesus and we need to walk 
in love, in this others-focused, self-referential, self-deferential, sorry, love of the other. Unity is only going to occur. We will only be able to stay together if we walk with one another in love. And the challenge is that this us and them dynamic, this us and them dichotomy that exists in a tribalistic world like ours is just accelerated and accentuated by not seeing each other in real life. That's one of the great damages of COVID-19 and the restrictions that came from trying to stem its uh, spread is that we no longer saw each other. That's why there's something so poignant and pointed about John's point when he says, I have much to write to you, but I don't want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Now, I know some of you are watching this in uh, the context of a gathered worship service at one of our campuses. And so for you, you are experiencing some of the joys, a completeness of a joy that occurs when you are gathered with other believers. I know some of you are also watching this at home, maybe on your phone or on your television, maybe by yourself, maybe with your family. And maybe you haven't uh, decided to come to some of our in-person gatherings quite yet. You've heard us talk about it. And maybe uh, you are staying back because uh, there is still some some health risks. There is uh, some vulnerabilities in your family. Uh, Maybe yourself, you have some health risks and uh, your doctors are still encouraging you to remain separate as much as you can physically for your own health and safety. Uh, Can I just encourage you, uh, we would love to hear from you. I would love to hear from you if you are the kind of person who needs to stay back, not because you don't want to gather from with others, but because you feel like you, you need to for personal safety reasons. The reason why I want you to reach out to us, the reason why I want you to reach out to me is that it will be so much easier for you to feel disassociated with and disconnected with the local church if you aren't gathering in person. And so if you can't gather for this season, we still want to find a way to walk together with you in this season until you are enabled to re-gather with all of us. So send me an email. We, we would love to hear from you so that we can chat with you about your particular situation. We don't want you to feel alone because there's protection in the pack. We need to stay together. Continuing in the faith, continuing in truth is dependent on a community that walks together in love. But in a tribalistic setting like ours, how do we do this? How do we actually walk together in love? Do you remember what the problem was that John addressed to his audience? The problem was that they were getting Jesus wrong. And so they needed to love one another to protect themselves from the false teaching. In other words, staying together is going to help us get Jesus right. And also in a circular kind of way, getting Jesus right is going to help us stay together, which leads us to the second implication of our text today, that we need to acknowledge the real Jesus. 
Second John verse five through seven says, I ask that we love one another and this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands as you have heard from the beginning. His command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers, here's how they're wrong, who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. See, these deceivers are wrong because they get Jesus wrong. They are not acknowledging the real Jesus. So how, how do we get Jesus right then? How, how do we ensure that the Jesus we are preaching, the Jesus we are serving, the Jesus we are following is the real Jesus? The docetist error, the main mistake that the people in John's uh, day were making was this error that thought that Jesus just seemed to be a human. Yes, fully divine, but he just seemed to be a real man. But Jesus was a real man. Jesus was fully God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The eternal son of God, the second member of the Trinity, became a man named Jesus of Nazareth. See, Christmas in July. (laughs) The real Jesus is a real person with particular descriptions and characteristics about who he is. He he is the embodied God-man. He was born of a teenage girl named Mary. And when he was born, let's imagine he was born something like seven pounds, five ounces. He was born a real baby, just like all other real babies. He was adopted like many people are adopted, he was adopted into the family line of his father, Joseph. And so he was in the line of King David, as the prophets foretold. Part of Jesus' particularity was that he was of Jewish descent. He looked a particular way. He had a particular culture. He had a particular hairstyle. There there was probably a point where around his ankle, where hair stopped to grow and there was the smooth part of his foot. There might've been like a mole on his left arm. Jesus is the kind of guy who walked on the real ground, who stubbed his toes on rocks and who got blisters because his sandals might've been a bit too loose or, or too tight. He's the kind of guy who got hungry, who actually uh, sometimes got food stuck between his teeth, who bit his tongue while he was eating. Jesus is the kind of guy who, who loved the fresh smell of bread coming out of the oven and who probably one or two times touched the bread too soon after coming out and burnt his fingertips. Jesus is a real man. I want you to imagine for a minute Jesus sitting in a synagogue in a church service one day and they open up the scroll and the reader reads from Psalm 139 and it says, for you created my inmost being. And Jesus, as he hears these words, starts to nod his head and close his eyes as he recognizes the truth of these words in his own life. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. Because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works 
are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Jesus is hearing these words come over him and he is nodding in truth because he is a real man. You see, the one who did the forming of humanity was formed as a human. The ancient of days had his very days ordained. The author of all of history had his particular story written. The one who heard our weeping became a child in manger sleeping. Jesus is a real, really real man. So if someone asks a question, who is the smartest, kindest, most courageous person alive today? The answer is Jesus. This Jesus who was born, who lived, who died, who rose again. He's embodied right now. Who's the smartest person alive today? Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit indwells believers. And Jesus is physicalized somewhere in the created universe. Oh, the the wonder and the mystery of our physical Lord and Savior, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. So why why does this matter? Why why does a real physical Jesus actually matter? I, I think it matters because we have a propensity to degrade the physical and to prioritize the spiritual. We see this culturally. People will say things like, there is the real me and then there is my body. So the real me is how I feel. My body is just this shell on the outside of who I am. There's this disconnect. We, we dichotomize, we, we degrade the physical and we prioritize the spiritual. We say the real me is my soul and I have a body. Actually, that's a phrase that uh, the church had quoted around in the 19th and 20th century. It's been attributed to all kinds of different people, but it went something like this. You don't have a soul. You are a soul and you have a body. This idea that your true you is your soul and your soul just happens to be encased in flesh. But the truth of what scripture teaches is that humanity, human beings, persons are an intertwined a uh, being who is equally physical and spiritual. We, we are both of those things at the same time, just like Jesus was. So when we think about the Christian life and how to thrive in the Christian life, what are the kinds of things that we typically think about? Typically, when we think about, you know, how, how do we live a good Christian life? We think about things like uh, we need to read our Bible. We need to pray. We, we need to go to church. And yes, and amen to all of those things. But also, because we are holistic beings of body and soul, we also, as Christians who want to thrive in the world that God has made us for, need to do things like uh, sleep <laughs> and eat well and exercise sometimes and take prescriptions that doctors recommend for us. 
We need to recognize what uh, they say in Latin, that life is corum Deo. Life is lived in the face of God. All of life, every action that we take in our lives is lived in front of God. Our physical lives, our spiritual lives intertwined to make us who we are. This is why one of the horrific things about death is that we are disembodied. We are removed from our bodies. Even though those of us who believe in Jesus have this hope that we are in some way now present with the Lord when we die, we are present with the Lord in an incomplete way. We await a future day, a day of resurrection, when we will receive from Jesus a resurrected body like he has. We will be re-embodied and we will live the way we were designed to live. You see, our future is as resurrected people. For those of us who believe in Jesus, our future is as resurrected physical people. I watched a movie uh, a few weeks ago on Netflix. It's called A Week Away. Uh, It is uh, one of those kind of cheesy movies. It's like a high school musical meets Christianity. It's a story about a troubled teenage boy meets, uh, you know, good Christian girl. But, you know, there's more to her. She's nuanced. There's a depth to her, right? She's got a story. Uh, she's still trying to figure out who she is, right? Cue now the musical number place in, uh, in this world from Michael W. Smith. It's this movie about uh, summer camp, Christian summer camp. And uh, it's full of nostalgia if you grew up in the era that I did because of the kinds of songs that they sing. But anyways, there, there's a tendency for people to think things like, oh, you know what? Summer camp's not real life. And I know what, what we mean when we say that. It, it's kind of true. But, but I think our eternity is more like Christian summer camp than we may give it credit for. This running around, this, this playing. There's actually one of the songs in the movie they, they sing, uh, My Father's House, right? Uh, there, there, there's a big, big house with lots of lots of rooms. There's a big, big table with lots of food. There's a big yard where we can play football. There's a big house. It's my father's house. We, we hear that song and sometimes we think, oh, that's not spiritual enough. Food and football and, and rooms. And... But actually, our, our future is physical. We are going to go to a house. There will be a field. We'll be able to eat food. We'll be able to enjoy our future as real life people. This past week, um, I attended the service for my Opa, his celebration of life. There was a graveside. He was 100 years old. My Opa was uh, a great man. He uh, served in the Dutch Air Force. Uh, He was a mechanic working on the airplanes in the war, and then he uh, moved to Canada. He became a Christian when he came here. Um, he continued to work in the uh, airplane industry his, his whole life. And uh, one of the results of him being a, an engineer and a mechanic on airplanes is uh, these were the days before you would wear protective headphones. And so uh, his hearing was just shot because of being around all those like hugely noisy engines. So for as long as I can remember, I wasn't ever able to actually have conversations with my Opa in a normal conversational way. Uh, One of the Opa-isms that he used to always say is if something really great happened, uh, other people might look at that and be like, that was amazing, what? 
myopa would look at that and go, it's pretty good. <laughs> you know, I was thinking uh, this week, I was sitting on uh, my patio and I was looking and the wind was blowing in the trees and there was birds chirping and I had a cup of coffee on the table. And I thought to myself, I'm looking forward to the day when I can have a conversation with my opa, where he will be able to hear me and we'll be able to talk and drink hot coffee and enjoy a Toblerone chocolate bar. And I imagine that at some point in this conversation, Jesus might come around. He'll pull up a chair, he'll sit beside us, he'll look at us and he'll ask my opa, how's it going, Jerry? And I think in that new creation setting, my opa will look at Jesus and say, pretty good. Life as it's meant to be. See, our eternal future is physical. There is a feast to come. I imagine there will be decorations. There will be people. There will be Jesus in the flesh. And it'll be pretty good. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, the way that it confronts us and challenges us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us have your word find a home in our hearts. That we would have hope in the real Jesus. And that we would walk forward in love for each other. Lord, would people know that we are followers of Jesus because of our love for one another and our love for our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.